Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. This is Brad Furlan, your host for Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV and historic Waterbury, Vermont. This old studio, 1930 uh, started. The walls are just covered with... Uh, Musicians of Vermont who um, came through, had their radio days. It's just, it's an amazing and Waterbury is very historic. Um, we're going to be talking this morning with um, Christine Keneally. Uh, she flew in recently from Australia and uh, I'm very excited to um, be talking to her about the ghosts of the orphanage uh book that um is is out now and uh you can you can get it it's an amazing book and we'll be talking over the next hour about that uh, i will uh advise listeners that there are some disturbing um parts of of the topic of this book for sure and uh just want to uh forewarn you that uh you know use your discretion um, but now I would like to welcome uh, Chris to the show. Welcome to Vermont and to WDEV. Thank you so much, Brad. It's great to be back here. Yeah, it's great. Um, you have traveled back and forth to Vermont um, researching this book. As we mentioned, it's The Ghosts of the Orphanage, and the topic is an orphanage in um, on North Avenue in Burlington. Uh, it was in existence for about 120 years and uh had some some really awful secrets and and you uh pursued that yeah and it took a really long time um just sort of recovering that story from history and all the ways that it sort of been disappeared over the years and it was really important to me too to to tell the story of St. Joseph's, but in context of the global story of orphanages, because the same kinds of things happened all over the place in Australia and England in Ireland. And the history of the stories coming to light is actually quite similar to it's really sort of fascinating arc to follow. So it was very global. Uh, it was. And Burlington was a piece of that. That's right. You know, it was like, I mean, I think of it sometimes as, as an archipelago, as this kind of, you know, almost geographic space stretching across the world, populated by these orphanage buildings, which often looked quite alike as well. You know, these sort of big, spooky, you know, two to four story places, the sort of that blocky institutional architecture. And depending on whether it was run by a religion or the state, you know, the kind of grace notes or decorations that you would expect, the statue or the cross at the front. But visiting different buildings, you know, all over the place, it was an eerie kind of feeling to experience in different sort of countries and different towns and states, the very similar a very similar place. You had that familiar each place you went. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Exactly. Uh, which is part of the puzzle pieces, right? You, you you start building on one and then you see it again and again. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I try to research um, my guests ahead of time and it um, listeners, it, it's impossible for us to spend an hour because we could just talk about all of Chris's credentials. <laughs> um, you're, you've, you have uh, a great-great-grandfather who was an author and um, really did a, a lot of what you have done with this book, too. 
you want to tell us a little bit about him and, and, and how that influenced you? Yeah, I would love to. He was my great-grandfather. His name was James Jerome Keneally, but he was known as J.J., and um, his book was lying around my house as I grew up, and it was just incredible to me to see, you know, our family name on the cover of this book and to realize that someone that I was related to had, had done this thing. And as I grew up and actually read the book and engaged with the story, it became even more entrancing for me. So J.J. Keneally wrote a book called The Inner History of the Cali Gang, and I think a lot of Americans are familiar with at least the image of Ned Kelly. He was an Australian bush ranger. We think of him now as a kind of a freedom fighter, really, in the, um, the mid to late 1800s. And he, um, he was a man who went up against the local constabulary, which at that time in Australia was really British. He was Irish. He was part of this Irish community in this small country town. And there was a very oppressive... British police force, and there was a lot of prejudice and bigotry against against the Irish. Um, so Ned, um, Ned, I guess, is best known for the armor that he built for himself. There was this sort of famous last stand where he created this. I think it was, it was some kind of metal. I'm not sure exactly what kind of metal it was, really. It was the sort of the upside-down bucket on the head with the <laughs> visor for his eyes and then the chest plate. Um, so my great-grandfather grew up near the Kellys. The Keneallys and the Kellys grew up in the same place. And so he knew the inner story. He knew the story of the Irish community. He knew the story of the Kelly family. So they had been vilified and, um, you know, Ned ultimately um, was was caught by the police and, um, and was hung. And um, for quite a while, people thought of him as just an outlaw, as a criminal, as a bad person. But in actual fact, when JJ published his book and told the backstory and how the community had been treated um, by the authorities he really reversed that history, you know, and he showed that there'd been this oppression and there'd been this prejudice and Callie had been fighting for more than just himself. It wasn't just about money. It wasn't about anything like that. It was really about freedom, um, the freedom to be who they were. And so, yeah, so that kind of flipped the history in Australia. So from that point on, after um, JJ's book, people thought of Callie quite differently with a lot more sympathy and understanding and, the fact that someone could write the true story that actually affected people, you know, and that was a gripping story was incredibly powerful for me. So the, the apple didn't fall far from the great, <laughs> great grandfather that, tree. It took a while. <laughs> it took a while, but yeah, got there eventually. So in, in your credentials, um, you are a, a linguist, um, you science, language and culture. Mm-hmm. You, you speak um, several languages as well? I'm or? not a languages person. Tiny little bit of French, um, most of which I learned to actually read the documentation of the Sisters of Providence um, at St. Joseph's Orphanage. But it was more language in the brain that I did, um, that I studied. And, you know, I just focused on English and what's happening inside people's minds. Like, as we talk to each other right now, what's going on? What kinds of decisions does your brain need to make? Right. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that concludes our interview for today, but we will, no, 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 no. It was no. a while ago now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're talking with uh, Christine Keneally. She is the author of The Ghosts of the Orphanage, a st- um, true story of the orphanage, uh, St. Joseph's on North Avenue in uh, Burlington. 
And I want to uh, mention to listeners that um, I was very interested in doing this story. And I was very interested because when I was about three years old, my dad um, brought me to a visit to the orphanage to visit um, cousins who were briefly in there. And I was left at the door. I didn't go in. I felt it was sort of ominous to be there. Um, and I've always, you know, it's a landmark in Burlington and I have my mother and other family friends are buried in the cemetery next to right. the orphanage. Right. Lakeview Cemetery is, is just full of Burlingtonians and, uh, yeah. and for, for, you know, oh, back to the Civil War. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was fascinated by this story. And, um, so you, um, where did, where was the beginning of, of sort of the quest for this for you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I want to talk about that, but first, can I, I just want to respond to what you said, because that, that is fascinating to me that you had that connection and, and that memory. And it's not surprising to me that the, the atmosphere was something that actually stayed with you. Uh, I certainly felt it when I visited the building before it was redeveloped. I walked through it and it hadn't been touched for years. Um, but what's so incredible to me about the history of orphanages in particular and in the United States is that history was almost completely disappeared and that there are really interesting reasons for that. And, um, and I'd love to talk about that. But given that it was disappeared, What's happening for me now, though, is I keep having this experience where you know there are very few history books, apart from a sort of a burst in the 90s, you know, which we can talk about. There's very little acknowledgement. There's not a lot of conversation. And yet when you talk to people, they say, oh, yes, that place. My grandfather was there. Oh, my great aunt was there for a few years. And so it's it's there. It's pervasive. It's inside the community still. It's inside people's families. But we just don't have the kind of conscious awareness that you would expect and that really we should have, given that it's touched so many lives. And it, it's not surprising, right, because it would if if people were there and experienced something that was horrific, um, they may not want to talk about it. So that's well, that, silence. That's true. The silence is really significant. But I think that the one of the ways to think about that silence is um, that had there been appropriate support, had there been validation, had there been acknowledgement, had there been an awareness, then I don't think the silence would have been quite the same. So it is absolutely true, though, that because of the ways in which people left the orphanage and went into the outside world and, you know, were not encouraged or validated in any way. There was this extraordinary stigma for a long time for people who uh, spent some time in an orphanage. And one of the first people that I spoke to, it was an Australian man who spent time in an orphanage in Sydney. He hadn't told his wife for, I think, 20, 30, 40 decades of sorry, 40 years of their marriage, um, he he hadn't told her. He was so ashamed, and he didn't even have the words for that shame. You know, it wasn't something he consciously decided to do. It was just this terrible secret he held inside himself. And he had this extraordinary experience where he ended up meeting a woman who was founding. She was one of the first founders of this group in Australia. She had spent time in an institution herself. She got together with another woman, 
and they started reaching out to people and it was the very first time that that had happened at all. So that was in the 1990s and they put ads in the newspapers. You know, you remember, you know, we all used to get our information from the classifieds and right. the ads in newspapers, right? So we read the ad in the newspaper and uh, thought he'd go along and speak to this woman. And, you know, I still remember him telling me about that experience and the relief that he experienced the day he told her his story and she essentially said to him, yes, it happened. Yes, it happened to a lot of people. It wasn't just you. And, you know, he talked about feeling like, you know, Superman flying through the air, just released. Amazing relief. Yeah. Silence and the lack of acknowledgement. Yeah. Talking this uh, morning with Christine Keneally, uh, she is the author of Ghosts of the Orphanage. And, uh, listeners, are just, uh, there are some, some disturbing and sensitive things in this, in our discussion today as, as we move forward. Uh, want to let you know that, um, uh, it's a powerful message and, uh, I hope you stay with us, of course. Um, so Chris, we were talking a little bit about, um, you, I mean, you're in Australia and yet you're, you've written a book that is heavy about Burlington, Vermont. But where, where did you, um, sort of get the, uh, notion that you would even do a book like this? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I guess I've been working as a journalist for a long time, but I started my journalistic work when I was living here in the States. So I lived here in the States for quite a while, grew up in Australia, based back there now, but did end up traveling back and forth a huge amount to write this story. But the impetus for it came from um, – actually, I was just at a conference in Australia. It was an archivist's conference. So I'm just really interested in information. And, you know, archivists are really fascinating people because they know where everything's kept, right? right? So interesting kinds of people for journalists to listen to. And I just really stumbled into a session. It was a presentation about a group of people who'd had all their information taken away from them. And I, di- I didn't even initially understand what they're actually talking about, um, how that could be. And it turned out these were people who'd spent time in orphanages in the 20th century. And they were sort of in their 50s and their 60s now, and they were trying to recover what had been taken from them. Um, so things like their parents' names, their own real names, not just their siblings' names, but whether they'd had siblings, just really basic stuff that it's hard, I think, for the rest of us to imagine not knowing about ourselves. And archivists were often on the receiving end of these requests, and they talked about it as a human rights issue, and it seemed really clear to me that it was a human rights issue. And I was also just very compelled by this awful conundrum that these people were in, this this you know, this absence of information about who they were. And I was really motivated and sort of I felt for them this idea, you know, I just how could this happen, right? I just didn't understand how this could happen. So started reporting the story out for myself and started trying to find people who'd spent time in orphanages. And the more people I spoke to, the more extraordinary the stories were. So it wasn't just about information, although that was one of the sort of the very important things for these people all this time later. Um, But there were many stories of abuse, and the abuse was just ranged across, you know, emotional abuse, there was physical abuse, there was sexual abuse that was perpetrated by uh, both male and female clergy as well as lay workers inside these institutions. And 
that abuse, of course, had sort of stayed with people for a very long time. And there were so many ways when they told me their stories that I could see you know, justice had not been done. There was this invisibility around these incredible experiences. Some of them, you know, they experienced events and situations which, you know, political prisoners could relate to, which soldiers in war could relate to. Kids were made to feel like they were going to die. Um, one of the characters in my book, Sally Dale, she was a woman who spent more than 20 years at St. Joseph's Orphanage in Burlington. She's a very brave amazing woman who ended up sort of in litigation in the 1990s and had a huge impact on that. Um, she had been taken up to the attic of St. Joseph's and that's a very, like I went up there before it was renovated and, you know, it was such a spooky, extraordinary space. I will never forget it. And she was tied into a chair there and told that she was going to fry. She was told it was an electric chair, and she was told she was going to fry. And just she believed it. She was a kid. She didn't know any better. Um, so just these incredible stories that initially I found hard to believe, uh, but the more stories I heard, the more the evidence began to accrue, and not just from one orphanage, but from many. There were so many stories in kind, if not specifically the same. Um, you know, and I was a bit like going through the looking glass, you know, and just finding myself inside this crazy world and trying to make sense of it and trying to work out how to tell the story of it. So uh, she didn't um, – Sally Dale, I did – you know, I've been listening to your book, and she's remarkable uh, how brave she was and how long she was there. She almost – became their indentured servant, right? Yes. Or she was their indentured servant for, for a long, long time. Was there an electric chair in the attic? Was that? Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't that she was making up something about a chair. There was something that could actually yeah. function. Yeah. So that was a really significant uh, story for me because Sally told – a lot of stories about her time at the orphanage and, you know, many of them were initially, particularly for someone like me, coming in from outside that world with no real sense of what it was like, you know, I, it was a little hard to accept and it was incredibly important for me given how high the stakes were and how big the claims were to validate as much of this as I possibly could. And so there were many of Sally's stories that initially, uh, whilst hard to accept, I, I found really strong evidence for. But the chair was one that kind of haunted me because over the years, every time I spoke to someone who'd been at St. Joseph's, I would say to them, you know, did this, did you ever see anything like this? Did you ever hear anything like this? And unlike many of the other stories, everyone I spoke to, and, you know, these were people from different eras, some from the same era, um, there was no strong reason to suppose that they would absolutely know about it. But I just couldn't find any trace of this chair, and it really bothered me. And then one day um, I got hold of the name of this lady who'd been there for one year in 1960. She'd been there with her sister, and I rang her out of the blue. And, you know, a lot of people, of course – you know, when I call and, you know, say I'd like to talk about this, you know, is this possible? You know, some, of course, don't want to talk about it. That's entirely fair and reasonable. Some people are really glad to hear from me. And it's something they've been wanting to talk about for a long time. And I think it's very validating for them that there was actual interest, that there was this sense that no, this is a story. What happened to you is real. So she told me about her time there in 1960. And I hadn't mentioned Sally 
I hadn't mentioned the chair. I'd raised nothing like that. And she started telling me a story about how one day she and her sister crept up to the attic um, of the orphanage and they went in there and you know it was a really vivid memory she was describing all these boxes with old clothes you know I'm assuming that potentially even from the 1800s you know old photographs old furniture and she said you know and then on the loft of the attic my sister and I we saw this chair and it had leather straps in the feet leather straps on the arms and there were straps where someone's head would be so it was absolutely a chair with restraints on it which is exactly what Sally had described where it had come from I don't know Uh, one of the survivors suggested to me um, there'd actually been a sanitarium next door that building was later bought by the church and turned into Don Bosco which was kind of an annex for the orphanage just where the older boys lived um but that had been a sanitarium. Maybe the chair had come from there and just found its way into the attic of the orphanage and then, of course, put to such terrible use to terrify Sally. Mm, so frightening. The orphanage uh, operated from 1854 to 1974, 120 years, which is quite remarkable. Uh, it was the Roman Catholic Diocese of Burlington, the Sisters of Providence, which is out of Montreal, and Vermont Catholic Charities all played some role in the operation. From your book, it appeared that a lot of the uh, the sisters and maybe the priests were actually from Montreal. Is that was that predominant, or was it a mix? Uh, the sisters. Yes, that that was the case. A lot of them came down from Montreal and they grew up there. Some of them were local, but their parents had come from from Montreal, from Quebec. Um, so that was a very strong connection, and that's where their mother house is based. With the priests, more they were from here. They were local um, to Vermont or even outside of Vermont, but not necessarily from Canada. So usually in the structure of the orphanage there would be one priest who was the head of the whole institution and you know he was treated and I, you know i'm sure you remember back in those days you know, the priests were gods right and very much so for the nuns not just the congregation um and then there would be sort of something like 20 to 30 nuns there at any one time and they ranged in age some of them were quite old 40s 50s 60s pretty tough to be that old and, you know, in a child, in an institution with lots of children. And then um, some of them were quite young. Some of them were, were, you know, young girls themselves, really novices, sort of thrown in at the deep end in this really difficult place. But one of the most powerful parts of the, the kids' experience was a lot of them spoke French, not English. Right. So the nuns would be there talking to them in French and the kids had no idea what was being said to them. It's amazing. Uh, we're talking with uh, Christine Keneally. She is the author of Ghosts of the Orphanage and a number of other books. She's a best-selling author. Uh, this is an orphanage on North Avenue in Burlington. was in existence for 120 years, and uh, it has a horrific story. And um, Christine um, originally... Um, got the story out in a BuzzFeed story and then has developed in, into a beautiful novel uh, that um, you're going to want to read because it's amazing. Um, we're going to be back uh, shortly after this break.
Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Good morning. This is Brad Furlan. I'm your Monday host for Vermont Viewpoint, but you're going, wait a minute, it's not Monday, it's Tuesday. Well, I was so fascinated by this story, and uh, it's Christine Keneally. She's the author of Ghosts of the Orphanage, an orphanage on uh, North Avenue in Burlington, 120 years of existence, and really a story of abuse and and uh, and death. Uh, it wasn't just abuse. Um, you mentioned physical and sexual, but um, death as well. Um, you, you mentioned Sally Dale, who was this longtime resident and Sally Dale and others started telling their story. And it seems to me the conundrum was that people went, wait, we believe the church. We believe the authorities. We believe the priests. We believe the religion. And yet somehow these stories started coming out and getting some validation. Yeah, yeah. The 1990s was such an interesting time for that to be happening. So we know that in 2002, the Boston Globe Spotlight investigation revealed that, you know, not only had priests been abusing children in that diocese, but that there'd been cover-ups in the hierarchy as well. And that, that kind of changed everything, right? That sort of flipped that whole belief-disbelief thing in this really powerful way. And from that point on, people who came forward to tell their stories began to actually get traction. And, you know, there was a reasonable chance that a judge or a jury or people in sort of first responders would at least consider the possibilities that the stories they were telling was true. But in the 1990s, even though those stories started to be told across the United States, and if you look back at the old newspapers, you can see some people were coming forward, were trying to sue their diocese, were trying to make change or, or sort of tell the truth there was still this incredibly powerful shroud of silence across, particularly within religious communities and particularly in the Catholic community as well. So, you know, like I said before, the priest was God, right? So within the institution, anyone who might have been inclined to push back, to talk, to tell the truth was very much... um, unable to do so or unwilling to do so. And one of the really interesting things I um, found by going back through documentation from the Sisters of Providence, from their own documentation, was that, you know, there's a lot of really elevated, lovely religious language about saving the kids' souls, about teaching by example, about teaching them reverence and courtesy and all these really good qualities. But there are also these really strong messages, this very repeated, regularly repeated note about silence being a virtue, and specifically with respect to nuns talking about the priests. There are explicit messages from the supervisor, things like, don't talk about the priests who come and go, and silence is the seal of a religious house. So this really explicit instruction not to talk. So that's within the institution and then within the community as well. You know, remember Sam Hemingway started reporting these stories when people came forward in the 1990s, really experienced journalism, really strong local press at the time. And um, he really engaged very deeply in the story. And he told me later that, you know, people were calling his editor at the Burlington Free Press and saying things like, this is blasphemy. 
you know, you shouldn't be allowing your reporter to tell these kinds of stories. So the will to, to sort of lock it away, to silence it, the idea that if you're telling a story like this, it's not because it happened to you, it's because you're trying to make trouble for the church, was really powerful and very, very hard for these really traumatized people to get that response. Yeah. um, Sam Hemingway, for listeners, uh, was a columnist for the Burlington Free Press, retired now from journalism that I know of, um, did break the story. And uh, the uh, it is amazing. Now, you you talked a lot about the fact that the, the Sisters of Providence out of Montreal were staffing, that you said 30 or more, Sisters in 2030, yeah. yeah. And, and a priest, were they a priest living on at the facility and then a mother superior and then? That's right. There would be a resident priest. The nuns were resident. There were certainly priests who came and went. There were programs in the summer where, uh, Brothers from a religious order would come to help entertain the children, although unfortunately, of course, that also meant people who were predators were coming in and getting access to the kids as well. Um, priests would visit when they came through the town and sometimes there would be delegations from Montreal, groups of sisters, because they're also running the same kinds of homes up there as well. Right. And you had mentioned when we were off air about there was a there was a vibrant you, I think I mentioned this there was a vibrant um, Catholic community in Burlington at the time, uh, Mount Saint Mary convent and all of that, but you didn't think that they cross threaded much with the orphanage. So no. no, that's right. There was an incredibly active community, and you know I just remember looking back through local newspapers from the time you know when there were public events there would be a delegation from the Sisters of Providence and also from all the other religious orders that were there as well. Um, When I was reporting the book, I tried to find as many nuns or former nuns from the Sisters of Providence as I could, and that was quite difficult to do. A lot of them had died by that time. I found some who were unwilling to talk. I did end up talking to one in the end. But when I was struggling with that, I I decided to start looking for sisters who belonged to other orders and who were also here at the same time. And, you know, it's hard to be sure why they said what they said to me. You know, a, a lot of people don't want to revisit that if they knew about it at the time. But my sense was of the other women that I spoke to that they didn't know what was going on in the place. Yeah, yeah, which in some respects is good to hear. Uh, we're talking with Christine uh, Keneally. She's the author of Ghosts of the Orphanage. If you want to um, ask a question or or um, chime in on this, 802-244-1777. Maybe you have a, a memory. In fact, uh, we have Bobby on the line from Randolph. Bobby, welcome to the show. Hi, Bobby. Thank you. Um I don't know how far into the years you checked on the orphanage, but I know that when it first closed down as an orphanage, it took in some refugees that were there in uh, like seven, like like seventy seven, seventy eight. Yeah, that's right. I heard about that too. Because my my mom worked there; she was the cook. Oh wow. Do you know, do you know, my, you know, that was interesting. That was a story I never was able to get too much information about. Do you know how long the refugees were there? Um, 
No, I my mom my mom left left work in there and went up to UVM to work in '78, and I I am almost I'm almost thinking that they weren't there any longer. They didn't need her any longer. Yeah, I think it was a brief period. Um, did your mom work there when it was an orphanage, or was it just after? Uh, no, just 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 after when the, when the refugees came in. Right. Okay. Well, thanks, Bobby, for the call. That's very interesting. So, uh, Christine, uh, the, and it, uh, we're going to get into, I want to let listeners know, I want to get a, into a little bit more of, of why this is such a compelling story. Um, there were abuses when I was listening to your book, I heard that, you know, kids were taken out of the, their, um, common bed space, which was probably 30, 30 bunks or, or cots. And would be brought into, you know, uh, somebody's bedroom and they were sexually abused. Um, that was documented as being fairly common. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. And, um, and that kind of thing was occurring in all the time that I was able to get documentation or witness statements or interview people. So that's from sort of the very late 1930s through to the 1970s. And um, it, it was so pervasive. You know, I, I, I don't know that I could say that it happened to everyone who was there, but it certainly happened to many, if not most. Um, and, you know, just, just this incredibly distressing experience, of course, that then – you know, when it goes unacknowledged and then when people try to tell these stories about it and they're not believed, it becomes even more harmful as well. Yeah, I mean, just to hear it, you go, oh, my God, that can't be possible. But then, in fact, not only was it possible, it was it was true. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, it, you know, maybe it wasn't everyone, but anyone who sees somebody missing, taken away, I mean, we we, the viewer... Uh, yes. it's, it's not quite as tragic, but it's pretty tragic. Oh, that's actually such an important point to make. I mean, the stories that people told me of watching what happened to the other kids, even if it didn't happen to them themselves, was just something that stayed with them for many, many years. Just that awful feeling of the powerlessness and the tragedy of that. And, you know, there were girls who were picked on. So I spoke to multiple people who remembered this one girl being assaulted or bullied or harangued or harassed, um, whether it was by the sisters or by one of the priests. And that's also so damaging and, and, you know, needs to be hurt, you know. And, of course, the more this comes out, the more we actually accept this is reality, this is history. It actually happens to a lot of people. And certainly child abuse occurs in many different contexts to many different people. I think it's really important to find a way to to make it more openly discussed so that there is that willingness to believe there when an individual comes forward with a story. So there were deaths at the orphanage. Um, Can we talk about that a little bit? There were, and and there were stories of death. That was one of the things that got me into this 10 years ago. So even from these orphanages in Australia, from these orphans who spent time there, they would tell me about these abuse stories and about physical abuse And then one of them would sort of say, you know, and then there was the kid that died or, you know, I saw a child beaten and he died before my eyes or, you know, just these 
incredible stories like that. And, you know, as we've been sort of saying, initially I sort of filed it away in a separate part of my brain. I just like, I took on the abuse stories. You know, there's enough cultural support now that we get it. We, we get that you've got to actually listen and consider and, you know, trust but verify stories like that. But I realized after a few of these death stories that I'd actually just been putting them aside and, and sort of, I'd heard enough physical abuse stories by that point where I realized, you know, if you believe that kids were thrown down the stairs on a pretty regular basis, if they were sort of assaulted and hit in the ways that they clearly were, it actually made no sense to just say, you know, to just put the death stories aside and not to engage with them. It was illogical to think that deaths couldn't have occurred in a place like that. St. Joseph's is important because in the litigation in the 1990s, a lot of people came forward with death stories and the sort of the overwhelming response from all the sisters who were deposed, from the priests, from the diocese was, no, no, nothing here, nothing happened. And, you know, just by going through the death certificates for uh, that era for St. Joseph's, I found numerous deaths. And, you know, and as much as possible, I tried to trace the stories of people who told, um, who said that, they'd seen a child die. Sally Dale, who we were talking about, said one of her first memories of the orphanage is walking in the back of the orphanage with a nun and a child just somehow landing on the ground before her, you know, and then hearing smashing glass, looking up, seeing a nun at a four-story window with her hands outstretched. And one of the really interesting things about that story with Sally, you know, I wasn't, of course, as you can imagine, able to find documentation to show that that had happened, although... I tried my best. I tried so hard to find, you know, the names of the kids who were there at the time, where they'd all gone, what had happened to them. But there was this very visceral detail that Sally told. And, you know, she was this in her 60s when she sort of had a deposition. But this very childlike perception that the child hit the ground and then they kind of bounced up again. It was a very strange thing to say and remember, right? So I ended up speaking to a forensic pathologist, and I described this to them, and they said, yes, that's what would happen. If a child around that age, I think it was below 10, quite young, hit the ground from a height, you'd actually expect that to happen. So the idea that Sally had made it up becomes so much less plausible when, mm-hmm. when, and you know, this is before the days of Law and Order SVU and you know all these shows that talk about forensics constantly. She was clearly describing a real experience that she had. Right. Uh, it's it's so horrifying. Um, we have a caller, uh, Rama from Williamstown, joining us. Welcome this morning, Rama. Hi, Rama. Yeah. Good morning, and uh, I, I haven't read your book, and I'll put yet after that. I, uh, I won't go into detail on, on, on my past experience, sorry about that, but it's not through orphanages, but it is through the home abuse side. But right. what you're describing, uh, maybe in different relative scales, but it's a microcosm of what's going on in society with children uh, happening today, right this very day. And I phrase it to people, you don't really understand what happens when that front door closes on some houses. Yeah. It is horrendously brutal. I um I, I think the the my worst fear is is that people won't understand even after reading a book like yours. And I kind of have an idea what you're going to describe because I've witnessed it mm-hmm. I, through myself, through other people, and I've read plenty of it. This is something that, as a society, we make it 
almost mandatory that you turn away from, that you don't see because it's such a difficult thing. Yeah. Don't interfere with your neighbors. That's not my child. No, yeah. How, how can I? Yeah. And, and I just hope people won't, like, go read your book. I hope people will read your book, but I hope what they won't do is view it as some isolated incident yeah. or when they read in the paper some child being horrendously abused. It don't see that as an isolated incident, but it's part of something that is going on today. It is a it is a continuum. So Rama, thank I, you for writing the book. Well, thank you for your call, and and that's a really important point. And and I just want to say I'm very sorry for your experience, but I, I absolutely agree with you that this is still happening in different ways today. And you know, a, a lot of the reporting for the book was based on an article I wrote in 2018 for BuzzFeed News. And I can tell you that we got a huge response and that 6 million people across the world read that story or viewed that story. Um, it was a very long story. And so it showed me that there is the appetite there, that hunger for that kind of truth and validation. And I think you're right. We haven't really worked out yet how to best respond when we when we suspect something like that in our personal life, I think we all need to get better at learning how to do that. But I do think the awareness is growing. And, you know, you've just contributed right now. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for that call. Um, I want to make sure that people know how to get your book. Um, we're going to – we've got maybe four more minutes. Um, how, where where do they go to get the book? So everywhere you get books. It's, so today's launch day. Today's Woo-hoo! the first day. Woo-hoo! Today's <laughs> the first day you can actually buy the book. Um, I'm talking at Phoenix uh, Bookstore in Burlington, and then there's a, a series of bookstores around uh, the state and uh, New Hampshire as well. I think they'll be visiting in the next few days. So all good bookstores and online as well. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the usual suspects. Awesome. It's, uh, it's a must read and, you know, I love the caller. I think that we can't turn our, our head away from this, be it neighbor, whatever, you know, when you're suspicious about something, follow through with it and, uh, you know, save a life. Even if it's, if it's one, not even if it's one child, it's, uh, remarkable. The, uh, there are a lot of, the readers will will find lots of uh, horrific tale in your and true tale in in your. One of the things was about uh, a young girl who had to eat. She had an aversion to milk and was eat had to eat um, her her vomit after being sick, and finally, um, I guess, was validated by a mother superior or someone. A little bit that 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 was going on, but right. And later in life, a doctor told her she was lactose intolerant. So there you go. You know, she just needed an actual expert to assess what was going on with her and to help her. Um, but you know, there there are there are lots of dark dark tales, but there's also an incredible amount of resilience and courage in this group of people. And, you know, a survivors group came together. They were supported after the 2018 article um, by the state attorney general who began a restorative justice process. And they have been doing incredible things. They have lobbied the government for change. They contributed to the change in the statute of limitations on child sexual abuse for civil litigation. And they did an incredible thing. They changed American history. They 
got the statute of limitations on childhood physical abuse for civil litigation repealed completely. That's never happened before in the United States. So, you know, they're out there, they're fighting for kids in the future. It's not just about reclaiming their history and it's not just about validating what happened to them. They're really focused on, you know, Rama's concern too, children now and children going forward. Is there still an action step? There may be um, listeners out there who experience this. We're at the orphanage. We don't know. Um, can they still come forward? Is there is there something that can help them now? Yes, there's a website for the St. Joseph's. Um, I'm sorry, I, I've never been able to memorize the complete name, the, the Restorative Justice Inquiry. If you Google around, you'll be able to find it. You could reach out to people there. You know, I would encourage people also just to talk about it in their families and in their lives, right? Because as we said right at the start, it's there in that cupboard, right at the back of the cupboard in lots of people's families. So that's always a good place to begin. We are talking uh, with Christine uh, Keneally about her book, Ghosts of the Orphanage, uh, that is being released today. There's a quote from the Sisters of Providence, um, and I quote, We believe that the loving presence of God watches over the entire universe and remains attentive to the needs of all, active in us and through us. This is what we call providence. You took a journey through this whole research and and wrote the book, where did you land with your own spiritual religious beliefs and institutions and yeah yeah, well, you know, I did not see any of that providence that was so beautifully described in that quote one minute yeah oh, yeah. yeah so um so that that's very disappointing, but I think religion done well. It's beautiful and it can elevate people's lives and connect them in community. And, you know, I certainly met plenty of people who'd been at an orphanage. Their religion still mattered to them. Some, some of course, abandoned it altogether, which is completely understandable. But some of them still very connected to either their original religion or to another. And it gave them great strength in their lives. Uh, Christine Keneally's book, Ghosts of the Orphanage, all the way from Australia, visiting us in Waterbury, Vermont. Thank you so much for being here. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Brad. Good morning. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Um, I guess Brad explained the why we were here, and that was a wonderful show Brad did. Um, very pleased that we could get him on, get her on the show today. Um, joining me in the studio is Catherine Dimitrik, who is the executive director of the Northwest Regional Planning Commission. And I was um, watching a committee a meeting the other day on Zoom, and there was Catherine. And I have known Catherine. How long, Catherine? Oh, 25 years. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's just, I was so thrilled that she is still out there working. Um, she does a great job in the Northwest Regional Planning Commission. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, this is here. cool. I'm so glad you're here. It's putting a smile on my face. Um, can you talk a little bit about your background with our listeners and how you became the executive director? And I should add when, because we were talking <laughs> about how many years you've been there, but. Sure. Um, so I've been the executive director of the Northwest Regional Planning Commission since 1994. 
Uh, so almost 30 years. Whoa. I've been at the commission. I've been the director a little less than that. Um, it's been really amazing job to have. I, t- I tell people I've had the same position for 30 years, but I haven't done the same job because so much has changed in the world of planning and in Vermont generally. Um, the Regional Planning Commission serves the in our regional planning commission is one of 11 statewide. We serve the communities of Franklin and Grand Isle counties. And we really serve as the bridge between local government and state and federal governments. As you know, Vermont has no county government. So right. we serve somewhat in that role. And we also use our staff to augment the capacity of local governments and help them do the work that they need to do to keep their communities strong and vibrant. That's great. I always remember you were our go-to person when we'd have questions and when I worked in the Department of Labor, I said, go get, go call Catherine. <laughs> so she's very, very knowledgeable. 30 years. Yes, and Oof. I call myself an accidental planner because my college degree is actually in resource economics and graduating in the recession of the early 90s, you took whatever job you could get. Right. So my first right. job I got was as a part-time planner for the town of Westford, and I found out I loved it and stayed in the field. That's great. Well, that's really great. So um, uh, I asked Catherine here because when she was uh, testifying, um, forget the committee, must have been economic. Senate Economic uh, Development. Yeah, right, Economic Development. Um, she, um, the, she and the group up north put together an amazing um, housing report, and it was with Housing for All, and it's called a New Housing Needs Assessment Shows Challenges Ahead. And um, you all know that housing is a very critical issue here in Vermont. There's an omnibus housing bill, it's S-100, making its way through the Senate at the moment. Um, it's very, one of those... Um, Better read every word sort mm-hmm. of bill. It's got a lot of stuff in it. It's it does. Many good things, many things I'm worried about, but you know, it, it is what it is. And, and at least I must give them a little credit. At least they're working on it. They recognize this is a problem. So, uh, Catherine gave a very compelling presentation. So could you give us a little introduction as to why, A, you decided to conduct the, the assessment, but, um, what were you facing that you decided maybe we better take a look at this more more formally? Mm-hmm. So I think anyone who is trying to find a home or knows someone trying to find a home recognizes that Vermont is in a housing crisis. Right. And we knew in Franklin and Grand Isle counties that um, that struggle was perhaps exacerbated and worse in other parts of the state because of our proximity to Chittenden County and the stress that puts on our labor market and our housing market. We knew that what we need is more housing of all types now. Yeah, right. <laughs> but there are many people who need to understand what that actually means. Like, what is the housing that we actually need? Can you quantify the need? Looking ahead, what sorts of, what types of housing and to serve who um, do we need? We have an initiative called the Housing for All Working Communities Challenge that's funded in part by the state of Vermont and in part by the Boston Federal Reserve Bank. Mm. And it looks at systems change. And the goal of that um, Housing for All is to spread the knowledge of the region's housing needs, ensure access to a safe home, build um, prosperous and healthy communities, sustain and improve existing homes and make it easier to build homes. Okay. So that this initiative is our way of trying to do what we can to 
address some of the points of the housing crisis, recognizing no one person can fix everything, right. no one initiative, but we're trying to do what we can, what we can control. And part of that is really quantifying the need. Right. Um, I work for a campaign for Vermont on, on another, another hat I wear. And we've been, we've been following the housing condition, housing crisis and what's been happening in the state house. But it's very hard, we think, to come up with solu- actual solutions like do this mm-hmm. um and that's been bothering us and we're trying to figure out how to how to get other people to come together and I mean we, it, what do you do and that's that's mm-hmm. what we need to to grapple with right now about um housing it's just terrible yeah and that is a question and the housing is so complicated yeah and it's driven by so many forces many of which we can't control or impact um, so I think the key is to really focus on the things that we can control and that we can impact. There you go. You have a team of 12 businesses um, that uh, that's they compromise that housing for all. Mm-hmm. That I didn't quite understand when I was doing the research. So they're together, these 12 uh, recognizable firms um, helping because I'm sure they need workers. Yeah. So the Housing for All is, is a collaborative effort across the region. We have a strong history of working together in Franklin and Grand Isle counties, and this effort has brought together private businesses, municipalities, mm-hmm. human services Churches, too. Wasn't there churches, churches on that? Yes, yeah. the faith community, the regional development corporations, and really a large list of coalitions of people and organizations that care about these issues. And they care about it from a variety of viewpoints, from wanting their children to be able to stay here, from wanting to be able to hire workers and entice them to come here, from wanting their employees to be able to stay in safe, affordable, and stable housing. That's great. Um, I just, uh, I also saw when I was doing some uh, research on the Internet, I (laughs) saw a video that was posted about your outreach efforts, Mm -hmm. and I thought that first I listened to the whole thing. It was an interesting discussion. People were really into it. And um, provided some great comments. Uh, could you talk about that? Because I think it's so important to reach out to the people. Absolutely. So in fall of um, last year, we hosted a community conversation on housing. And we invited people to come and talk about their experiences with housing, their ideas for what can be done. And some of the things we heard were what we had been hearing elsewhere. You know, the cost of housing is unaffordable. Um, But we also heard some interesting things. We heard about the struggles that landlords have. I mean, often we hear about... When we talk about rental housing, what we hear is how expensive it is and how challenging it is to find a place. We don't always hear from the landlord perspective, which is sometimes it's challenging to manage tenants. And unfortunately, with the um, some of the circumstances we have now, we do have people who struggle to be good tenants. And, right. we, and we heard about those challenges and the assistance and supports that could help <laughs> landlords um, be able to manage tenants better. We also heard about... Um, struggles with financing. We heard about um, the interest in doing accessory apartments, but all the barricades and blocks that make it harder to do that. So we really heard some great things from people. And what is an accessory apartment? Is that like a mother-in-law? Yeah, it's so what people used to call the mother-in-law apartment. Yeah, it's an accessory dwelling unit is a small apartment that you would build within or really near your home um, where you would live in either the apartment or the main home. Well, I have, um, over the years, I've, I've befriended a realtor or two, and they tell horror stories 
about having one, A, about if they have a trouble tenant, if somebody's causing problem, it's very hard to get rid of them uh, because of the laws. And then they leave the place a mess. And there's a lot of uh, money spent repairing apartments. That's not to say everybody. It's just a small group, but enough to, enough to cause problems. And that I think some of the real estate people, the landlords, they're dealing with this and probably struggling with what to do. One of the things that our our community action agency recently did is hire a landlord liaison, and I think that's been a Good. really a really great uh, initiative to to make those connections right. um, because we need landlords. We need landlords to be able to rent apartments yep. to people. Yes, <laughs> right. we yes we do. Um, and I know uh, some friends that live in apartments in Chittenden County. Holy moly, mm-hmm. that's a lot of money. It sure right is. There. Anyway, <laughs> so can you talk about? Um, the population, who you're dealing with, your customers up in Franklin and County, what number of people and how the race, ethnicity, dis- disabled, homeless, what's the, what's that group look like? So our, our population in Franklin and Grand Isle County is very similar to the rest of the state in terms of age. Um, we are an aging population. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but we do, um, we, unlike some other parts of the state, we are growing. So we did have a small amount of growth in Franklin and Grand Isle counties from 2010 to 2020. Um, so we are a growing population. We are, our growth, although small, is a little bit more diverse. So um, in the last 20 years, about 60% of our growth has been from people who um, report as being black, indigenous, hmm. um, or a combination yep. of races. So we're, we are seeing some increase in diversity of race and ethnicity. Um, we do have a population of single person and low income households that struggle to meet their housing needs. Right. I'm very similar to the rest of the state. Yep. And we do have people who are disabled who also struggle to find housing. Yeah, and we're going to talk about the details of the report. And I was surprised to read about the number of single people. Mm-hmm. And I found that fascinating. Yeah, we, we found that fascinating. There were a few things that surprised me when um, we did this report, which was done by PlaySense, a consulting firm. Uh, the one of the things that did surprise me is the growth in single-person yeah, households. Right. Because my take from my two grandchildren and all their friends is that age group is staying home mm-hmm. because they can't afford the prices of, uh, um, my, in my case, my two grand. they're working, and mm-hmm. but they live at home, and uh, my daughter gives them, you know, this like they have their own apartment, but uh, it, that's just, it, it's not theirs. They're not building equity, and mm-hmm. um, and that's concerns me, but it's a reality. Yeah, um, and ca- I think oh. the, the single-person households, um, from the data that we can glean, crosses all age groups. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the young people ah, who are starting okay. out, but it's it could be seniors who find themselves right. alone yeah. in their home now. Um, I was hoping we could – there's a couple of highlights from the report that I'd like to talk about because I had some questions on them, how you reach those conclusions. The first one is that, you know, we're not creating the number and types of homes in the in the Franklin and Grand Isle. Um, And you said to provide people with the foundation for economic stability and better health. When you take those two issues, I'm just curious how you determined – how many are out there who um, are not able to um, find the appropriate housing? How did you come up to decide how much that who who is who it is? How did we get there? Yeah, how did we get there? That's a good question. <laughs> so our our housing needs analysis 
estimated that about 7,600 households or individuals in Franklin and Grand Isle counties um, are underhoused. And the way we define underhoused um, is three pieces. The first is people who are currently unhoused. So um, typically referred to as people who are homeless, right. um, people who don't have a permanent place that they can call home. The second group of individuals added up into that 7,600 is those who are cost burdened. Uh. So people who cannot afford to live in the places that they are currently living in an mm-hmm. affordable way. And the third group of people that um, add into that number are people who are um, underhoused, so living in a situation that they may not um, prefer to be in. And uh-huh. I know you um, <clears throat> reference young adults who right. who maybe want to fly the nest but aren't doing that yet. Right. That is a group of people that we, we would count okay. in the underhoused group. Yeah. Just telling Catherine about my grandchildren. They're in their <laughs> 20s, but they're still home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're free to come and go as they want and stuff, but um, I'm sure they would prefer, but Portland is um, just as bad as Burlington, I think. So Yeah, so there is a portion of those people that we counted to yeah, come up with that number. So it's a lot of door knocking, a lot of uh, roaming around? <laughs> it's based on data. <laughs> so oh, okay. The- so there's no door knocking. No. What I heard in the statement that you made about economic stability and better health, I think that housing is just a, a, the tip of the iceberg, sort mm-hmm. of, because behind that is getting a good job and and the cost of healthcare which just all together you can't win for you know, for trying i mean it's just the three-legged stool yeah we actually call it um the formidable four in our region coined by Kathy Lavoy who is our workforce oh. investment yep. uh, director and the formidable four impediments to being successful housing transportation ah, child care Yep. And substance use. Those were the formidable four issues that we're facing in our region. And um, housing is a foundation for really the other three. <laughs> well, let's say when I moved, this is a long time ago, when I moved to um, uh, Vermont from, sorry to say, but New York. Um, <laughs> but I was very surprised about the cost of child care mm-hmm. and, and food, actually. Those were the two things I noticed when I came in. I, I went to the Grand Union like the first week I was here and I did my usual shopping, you know, the thing, the list you've got in your head. And when I checked out, it was like 40 bucks more. And I went, oh. <laughs> no, is there's something wrong here. And nope, there's nothing wrong. It was, that's what it was. And then uh, I knew from childcare how expensive mm-hmm. it was. So. Yeah. And if you're a person who's um, typically affordable housing is, housing is considered affordable if you pay 30% or less of your income for oh. housing costs. And if you're, a uh, household that's paying more than that, yeah, it then it hurts right. when it comes to trying to pay for yeah. child care or health care. Which leads to, my, I discuss this all the time, that the four out of, of no, it's 40% of Vermonters, that's the, the stat, 40% of Vermonters are dealing with food insufficiency mm-hmm. because that's the first thing they, they stop spending money on if you've got to deal with the rent and the housing and the mortgage. And, and when you look at a McMansion, you should not, assume that everything is is well behind those doors because 40% of Vermonters is a lot of people. It is a lot of people who are housing insecure. I mean, yeah, home, uh, yeah food, food insecure. insecure. Yeah, yes, it's really absolutely. it's really scary. So, 
um, and you just mentioned the 7,600 people in the, in the two counties. Um, and I, I just, that's a lot of folks. How, what is the total population in your area? Do you know? Uh, the total population off the top of my head is just yeah. over 50,000 okay. people. Well, that's still a lot of, a lot a, of people. It's a lot of people. Um, and when you, when you think about our housing needs and just the sustained effort that we would need to build more to, to just catch up. Yeah, right. And right. serve those 7,600 yeah. people, not even mention bringing in new people and meeting our future economic and community development goals. Right. It's bad out there. And these, all of the statistics that you have in this report were 2020 uh, from exactly. the census data. And that didn't really include the pandemic. So I'll bet you those numbers are not going down if you did it again. Absolutely. So the study showed that um, if you're a renter, 43% of renters are currently living in housing that's considered unaffordable. So they're paying, so they're paying more than 30% of their income for housing. And 30% of homeowners are in that place as well. As you know, that was 2020 data. Right. And we know that the median housing cost in Franklin County, for example, has gone up $30,000 right. in two years. Right. Yeah, because there's a demand there. So the sales and rent prices are going up. That's mm-hmm. just sort of the way it Absolutely. goes. Um, I wanted to, we were talking about the household growth going up for non-family and single-person households. Um, I guess, what is the definition of non-family? Is that just a non-traditional a group of people bringing in grandma, grandpa, and, and other folks? So non-family would be those you're not related to. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> oh, I missed that definition. So it's just a group of folks sharing the, mm-hmm. the cost and you have, you have a lot of that situation? Or? Um, it's growing. Really? It is definitely growing. Huh. And, um, it's interesting household size is decreasing, um, but the net, and the number of non-family households is growing. Interesting. Well, you said the, di- the data highlighted, uh, you called it mismatch between the types of home built and the people who need them, that mm-hmm. they're out there. But maybe not for the people that need them. Yeah, if you look at um, the housing that is available in Franklin and Grand Isle counties, it's predominantly single-family detached homes. Yep. And that's predominantly what's built now, bar a few projects. And if you look at where our housing growth is, it's in the single-person households. So there is definitely a mismatch between what's being built and what our future housing needs are. So when I talked um, at the beginning about how we need more housing of all types, it's really the all types that we need to focus on, too. It can't just be more housing. It needs to be of all types. And where are these single people coming from? Are they just leaving the nest or are they moving in from other places because Grand Isle is so attractive with the water and the, I mean that's a great it's even a great second home sort of place. Yes. <laughs> um, so yes, yes, and yes. The, the yeah. single person households come from people moving there. They come from people finding themselves now alone in their home where they right. weren't before, um, and they also come um, from people wanting to fledge the nest. <laughs> there you go. That was me. I I, I fled early on in life. Um, so obviously we're looking at people with low incomes, people identified as you talked about, uh, black, indigenous, and people of color. Um, they get hit the hardest. Absolutely. Those numbers that I gave about affordability where 43% of uh, renters can't afford um, the rent that they're in, like wow. it's, it's unaffordable, that's actually worse the lower you go on the income scale. Sure. So for our so for our um, lowest income residents, the number is about 80% are in house, are renting in places that are considered unaffordable to them. 80%? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people, and it's a struggle. I mean, if you've never... If you've never had to think about how you're going to pay your rent, you can't imagine the amount of stress right, it puts sure. on a person. You yeah. know, I, um, I'm i very lucky and privileged now to be a homeowner, but in my younger years, as I know, I graduated from college during the recession of the 90s, and yeah. I've been in the situation where wrote a check for rent and hope I made enough tips at the restaurant <laughs> exactly. that night well, to cover the checks. So. That's when they allowed us to, <laughs> exactly. to we had a we had a couple of days. I remember uh-huh. that now it's instant. It drives <laughs> me instant, crazy. Yes. Even at the food store the, the check goes in and it takes it right out. Yeah, so I recognize the stress of when I have lived it and it is it it impacts your health. It impacts oh. your ability to succeed. Yeah, been there, done that. Yeah. yeah, that's funny. I don't know how they figured that out to be instantly, <laughs> but I always like the two or three days that you yeah, can. So it was, hope it the was very helpful when you needed it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, we're going to take a break in just a minute, and uh, I want to talk about the word, and you just said it, catching up, mm-hmm. because I saw that in your report, and we will talk about that on our way um, uh, on the side of the break that's coming up any minute. I'm watching Danny. Um, because, and then the, the issue of aging in place, there's just so much stuff happening out there. My husband and I are not leaving our house because it's paid for. Mm-hmm. We can move downstairs, maybe have, uh, my husband's not too happy about this idea, but have income uh, upstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what a deal. What else do you need? Um, so we're going to take a break right now. Um, and uh, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Be right back. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Hi there, this is Pam McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. And I'm here with Catherine Dimitrik, who's um, head of the Northwest Regional Planning Commission. And we are talking about a study that the commission um, undertook. And the title of that, uh, that final report is New Housing Needs Assessment Shows Challenges Ahead. And one of these challenges is what I referred to before the break, aging in place. That's me. Uh, and you comment in the report that the number of people aging in place will to continue, continue to grow until peaking around 2040. Whoa. How did you determine, how did you come to that conclusion? Just us old folks are hanging around too long, right? <laughs> well, no, not too long. <laughs> uh, so the, that conclusion, um, our consultant used the census data to just, you know, look ahead and project right. ahead to, um, where our population will be 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. And we do see it peaking in 2040 and then shifting a little bit. Uh, most of these, I'm assuming, are older, um, retired retired mm-hmm. people. And I just posted something on my Facebook. I, I um, uh, heard, read some information about a new study that Vermont is the fourth most expensive place for retirees to live. Oh, I'm so proud of us. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if we keep going, what they're doing in the, 
in Montpelier, we may be first after all. But that's another show. <laughs> um, but uh, the aging in place is an issue. It is an issue. And what we're finding, you know, the data shows that it's an issue. And we we recognize that. And what we're hearing anecdotally is it's an issue for a number of reasons. Um, if you look at affordability, seniors um, have the data shows that it's housing is less affordable for seniors right. and single-person households. It also, we are hearing anecdotally that Seniors that want to perhaps downsize or move to a more accessible dwelling can't do it Mm -hmm. because the housing costs are so high, and um, so they can't move. So that leaves them stuck in a place that may not be ideal, and it doesn't free up that home for somebody who may need a a single-family home, for example. I think it's it's hard to move at a certain age. I have a a dear friend, they're in their 80s, and they're moving out of state. And I thought, what a huge decision because you have to, you know, all the doctors and the services and, and blah, 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 and, and just basic friends to, to talk to. That's a big decision. But I understand why because of the expense. Yeah. And um, I think what, you know, what the housing crisis is doing is it's taking away the choice. Exactly. So right, that's your you. choice that you, th- you want to be able to stay where you are. And right. that's great if you right. can make that work. But the ability to move somewhere else in Vermont, if you want to downsize or you move to a more accessible unit or, right. or anything, um, that choice is being taken away yeah. because of our housing crisis. So you talked a lot in the report about catching up, and you just mm-hmm. mentioned it a little bit. How do you catch up? Um, that's that's a big challenge. And it's it must take a lot challenge. of money. It's a huge challenge, and there is no one solution that's going to fix this housing crisis. Um, so much of what feeds into the cost of housing is beyond our control. You know, we can't we can't impact the cost of a sheet of plywood. You know, we yes we, we can't do that. But what we can do is we can make sure that our state and our communities have permitting systems in place that encourage housing in our growth areas and make it easier to build there. Right. And we are, the Regional Planning Commission is working with the town of St. Albans, Montgomery, several other communities on what's called a bylaw modernization project where they're looking at... Do that again, I missed that. It's called bylaw modernization. So looking at your local permit regulations and making sure that you really are making it easier to build in those places that you want to see housing. And there's been some great work in that area being done. And we really see this as one thing that we can control, <laughs> that we can um, make some movement on that um, so that if land is developed in our growth areas, that we maximize the housing that can happen there. Uh, some of this deals with Act 250. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in the legislature yesterday or the day before, there was a big discussion. They wanted to, some people wanted to do more building and others uh, were worried that this was changing Act 250 and they didn't want to change it. Um, but I think Act 250, when it was started, was a was great. We needed it to control and um, you know, not to take, you know, not pave the pave the pavement for what's that song about a paving paradise. Pave paradise and put up a parking lot. We don't want that here, but we have a demand and something's got to give. And I think some of Act 250 has to be tweaked. It just you have to you can't hang on to it. It's 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 too much change outside in the real world. Yeah, I agree with you, Pat. I think that there are definitely changes that can be made to Act 250 to make it easier to build in our growth right, areas. Exactly. And that's key. You know, we we 
we need to respect Vermont's land use goals yep. because they've helped create the state that people want to move to. Exactly. <laughs> so, right. And, and the, that we all want to stay in. Um, but we need to make some changes both at the local level and the state right. level. And municipalities can't be expected to be the only ones to change. You know, I talked about that bylaw modernization right. project. The S100 also has some some required changes to local development regulations, but towns can't be expected to do everything. There needs to be some changes at the state level, too. Yep, I agree with that. But you're an up, uphill battle, Catherine, because <laughs> there's some people that want to hang on to Act 250 just like it uh, can't be touched, but it should be. I think we are in a crisis, a housing crisis, and mm-hmm. that requires some bold action, yep. and it also requires compromise. Not compromising everything, yep. but there has to be some compromise. Well, I look back to what happened after Tropical Storm Irene. Mm-hmm. They really did back off of regulations, and things were fixed much faster yeah. than they would have been otherwise, and nothing fell apart, nothing terrible happened, because I don't think builders want to have the parking lot either. They want the um, the, the beautiful views and the land and uh, because they're Vermonters too. So mm-hmm. anyway, it's very, yes. very strange. So catching up involves a lot of, a lot of work, a lot yeah, of and different involves, people. It involves not only building new housing, but fixing some of the housing that we have. Right. Some of it is substandard or it's not being able to be occupied now. And, oh. and that takes money. Yeah, it does. You must have yeah. some old, old stock in, we in do. your area. Yeah. Um, Franklin County especially has some pretty old housing stock. Some of our, some of our towns have, among the oldest housing stock in the state. Like oh, really? Like a community like Richford, its housing stock percentage-wise is among the right. oldest in the which state. Which is a killer to heat, mm-hmm. which uh, is a killer to repair. Yeah. Yeah. It's really uh, bad. Oh, we've got a call, Catherine. Jim from Barry. Jim, you're on the phone. Do you have a question for Catherine? Yeah. Hi. Good morning. Morning. Um, I, I moved to Vermont in 86, and I, I had some ideas of, of owning land and, and ultimately maybe living off the retirement of, of selling a lot here and there. And, and over the course of the last 35 years, I've just come to the conclusion I want nothing to do with land development in Vermont. It's way mm. too risky and way too speculative and, and just way too uncertain. And I think there has to be an acknowledgement today. Um, back in 86, it was at 289 or something like that was the, was, was the big thing that we were, were concerned with. But I think there has to be an acknowledgement today that we're exactly where everyone on the, I don't want to say developers end, that was the, the casual guy that might buy a piece of land and subdivide it, um, just completely went away because it's just way too speculative. And I, I think if we don't acknowledge that we've kind of created our own problem, it's, it's never going to resolve it. And I'll give you a couple of key examples of it. As I understand it, if you buy a piece of land today, and you want to subdivide it, you have to get your perk test and your um, septic system design prior to doing the subdivision, which just front loads all this incredible money to someone that just has a little mm-hmm. extra money. They want to speculate on some land. And, and right now I'm at a point where we're kind of thinking of buying some land to develop uh, or build a house ourselves or maybe something you have a separate lot. It just gets way too confusing for someone that's just sort of doing it on the side. Maybe we'll have a second lot that we can sell. But I, anyway, I think there has to be an acknowledgement that the the rigid um, land use development regulations in the state of Vermont has created this problem, period. Yeah, thank you, Jim. And you say the development area 
the, the growth areas, every area has the opportunity to have some kind of a growth. To say that you have to have it here but not there is, is part of the problem, that mentality that thinks that you can dictate it. But anyway, that's my, my comment. It's not really a question other than is there buy-in to the idea that we created our own problem. <laughs> oh, thanks for the question. I'm waiting to hear what Catherine has to say. <laughs> well, I suspect we may degree, disagree on some of the particulars. Um, I think we can agree that this is partially a problem of our own making when it comes to our permitting system. Right. When I started in my career, I, I'm, do, I'm old enough now that I can say way back when. Way back when. In, the, <laughs> um, in the good old days. Way back when. Um, when I started in the planning profession, there was concern about the speed and scale of growth happening in Vermont. And communities, when we talked about redoing their local development regulations, this concern was how do we manage growth? How do we slow it down? How do Mm. we make sure it doesn't overburden our schools? Our schools were busting at the seams. And so we developed, I think, in response to that, a system that because things move slowly in Vermont has remained in place even when we're now at a place where we're saying we need more housing, we need more right, kids in our right. schools, and we need more people like Jim to be able to to do these small developments to right. help ease our housing crisis. Well, when I was in the Department of Labor, I heard from many developers, and all they said was about it, we want predictability. Mm-hmm. Because Jim's right. Um, you go into a project and you don't know where it's going to lead you financially. And they, they said, all we want is predictability. Tell us how much and how long and they'll, they'll accommodate that, but they need, and that's fair. You, you mm-hmm. can't blame them for they want to know what, what they're facing. And, and I think Act 250 is not as predictable as, as people would like. I think from my viewpoint, watching projects go through Act 250, which is the only viewpoint I have, right. um, it is fairly predictable, the course it takes and the, the approval that will be reached at the end. Really? What I can't comment on is everything that happens before that point. Mm-hmm. So once a project hits Act 250, I think it's fairly predictable what's going to yeah. happen. Um, getting to that point, right. I can't speak to. Right. <laughs> well, I think uh, that, that's probably what it is because – as Jim mentioned, there's so many things you have to do before, like the perk tests and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff, and, and it all costs money. And, it and, does, um, and there's value to that, too. I mean, we don't want people uh, buying lots that can't be developed and, and protecting the consumer. So there, there's, there's good reasons behind most of the systems right. we have in place. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean we shouldn't examine them and tweak them. Maybe, and maybe them. we're just bad at not informing people why we're doing things. It's very funny when you, like when I was in motor vehicles, people get really mad down in the lobby and I go down there and I tell them exactly what's happening and why. And they were, they didn't help them. It didn't change anything, but they seemed fine because they understood. Mm-hmm. And maybe we're just really bad at it's, this is what we're doing and that's it. And you got to follow it, but maybe we should spend a little time explaining why. Yeah, yeah, and I think explaining why leads you to a conversation about, you know, honing in on ideas for how things could be different. Right. Like if that's the why, well, how else could we get there? It Ex- might be better for everybody. Well, there you go. Good. I love this conversation. That is good. Thanks, Jim. That was really good. Um, but also asking, I, you said about setting goals in your report. Who? should be at the table with you to set those goals so actually action can happen afterwards. Mm-hmm. Who who sits at the table with you to make those decisions? 
So we'd like to have at the table with us all the people we mentioned earlier that are part of the Housing for All Working mm-hmm. Communities Challenge Coalition. So that includes our community action agency, small developers, um, our chambers of commerce and development corporations, as well as municipal governments to really take this number of need that we estimate is out there and figure out how how do we meet that need? Where this, where should this housing go? What can we do strategically to help make it happen in our communities? Yeah, that's great. And I think I know I noted uh, that you also said involving all communities, including marginalized mm-hmm. population, they all they all need a voice at the table. Absolutely. And one of the things that um, one of the things that's somewhat unique about housing is that everybody that you talk to has a stake. They do because mm-hmm. everybody needs a home. Yep. There you go. Um, Catherine, we have a caller, Eli from Barry. Eli, you have a question for us or a statement? Well, yeah. Hi, can you hear me okay? Yes, you're good. Go ahead. Well, great. Thank you both so much for having this conversation. It's so important to me. You know, I've been a, lived in Vermont for, for many, many years. And I don't mean to sideline the conversation at all, but one question that I don't hear ever coming up is where are the wages to support these right. houses? That, that we want to build. Like, we have a housing crisis, but guess what? No one in Vermont can afford to buy a house. So I, I'm just curious as to why I don't hear more about that. Or, Well, I think, as I, I just mentioned before when I was talking to Catherine, that it's much more than housing. It's the cost of health care. It's what we, you get in jobs. And Catherine listed child care and some other things. And um, it's it's just not housing. It's the whole package. And... Um, uh, I agree with you on 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 jobs um, and training. Um, there's just a lot that has to happen to make um, us all be able to afford housing. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, Eli. You know, the the point of this report was to look at housing specifically in terms of the counting the units that we need and the affordability of housing as it exists. One way to fix that equation to make it more affordable is if wages go up. Right, um, and we are seeing wage growth. The the study did note that there has been wage growth that for homeowners, at least up until 2020, had kept up with home price increases. For renters, it has not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they are talking about renters a lot in the state house, um, recognizing that their their needs. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a good conversation. So, um, but I know everyone said, well, we've talked about job costs and minimum wage increase. Um, but it's not just minimum wage. It's, it's all wages. It's, it's all wages mm-hmm. because um, uh, you think it's a lot of money until you start uh, paying for all the stuff we've been talking about. Right. And when you think about, um, you know, minimum wage, minimum wage, if you work full time, would put you um, at less than 50 percent of the median income for the state. And that would mean, according to our study, that chances are that 60 percent of those people are living in housing that's unaffordable. Wow. Pretty staggering. Welcome to yeah. Vermont. Thank you, Eli. That was a great question. I appreciate it. Great comments. Um, so you're, I mean, I, a lot of the stuff that you put down, it's all about data. Yeah. <laughs> and I know it is. I'm looking at this list and tracking this, updating, and it's all about, um, tracking this and, and making, doing an analysis of what the data tells us. And that's always a good thing to make decisions based on data. That's what um, a lot of folks try to do because you know it's true. You know the need is there. Anecdotal yeah. um, doesn't quite cut the cut it. And but we also know that data doesn't work for everybody. 
And, um, you know, we're, I'm a planner, so I look at data and right. it speaks to me, but it doesn't speak to everybody. So another initiative that we're doing through the Housing for All Working Communities Challenge is we're working on a video series to hear from people about their experiences finding and staying in housing in Franklin and Grand Isle counties, calling it Voices from Home. And we're working on that over the next few months mm-hmm. to really put the people behind the data yeah. to describe what's happening. And so... um are most of your people that are working people, do they travel to Chittenden County or are, are they employed locally? Do you have um, that information? It is a mix. We do know that we have, um, depending upon which count you look at, anywhere between eight and 10,000 people daily that work in Chittenden County from Franklin and Grand Isle counties. Mm. So because it's a significant I, yeah, number. As I heard on a, another show, um, I think, I don't know, it was Matt Dunn was saying it, but People that, that don't have the money and need more affordable housing move out of the work, the, mm-hmm. the job market area. Like, and they were talking about Rutland and so people move out of Rutland and it's almost like a catch 22 because then they have to pay for transportation. So what's, what's, what's less expensive? Staying in Rutland and then walking to work mm-hmm. or, or taking public transportation or moving outside, buying your home and then having to travel. Yes, it is definitely it's a catch twenty two. It is a catch twenty two, and there's this other measure of affordability that is, um, if you look at transportation plus housing, uh-huh. um, not supposed to exceed forty five percent of your income. And if you look at Franklin and Grand Isle counties, and you use that measure, there's one small part of St Albans City that's considered affordable by the average household. The rest of the region is considered unaffordable using that measure. Wow! And it's because you look at um, the commuting distance that people right. have to make in order to afford the place that they live in. Right. It's a big decision. Is doing that too. It is. Yeah. Um, I know. I, I was in Bristol first, and and I took a job in in Burlington. And that was a big commute mm-hmm. um, and cost, uh, you know, cost a lot. And one of the things that, you know, that number that we talked about earlier, the 7,600 people who are currently under housed, right. that doesn't account for those people who maybe would prefer to live closer right. to where they work but can't afford to. And what's your public transportation up there? Do you have a local a transportation unit? Or? We do. Green Mountain Transit, that serves Strittenden County and right. Washington County right. and Loyal also serves Franklin and Grand Isle, but it's very limited. You know, we do have a commuter bus once a day from St. Albans into Burlington, and then we have a route from St. Albans to Richford and into Alberg. Okay. Do they bring you back? They, they, do, <laughs> they do, but you can't make all your connections always. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, I was, um, oh, I guess when I was uh, in transportation, we were working with some of the local uh, buses to mm-hmm. at least to make them connect. Yes. Um, because if they coordinated their time, you could go from Rutland to mm-hmm. somewhere else, uh, Chittenden and, and then have a bus there that could take you, but they never, never quite it's coordinated. It's getting better. Is it getting better? It's getting better, Pat. It used to frustrate me to know when. How hard is this? You started a trend and it's getting better. <laughs> well, I mean, why can't somebody get from Burlington to, to Rutland now? Of course, we have the train, but that's a few bucks. Um, so, <laughs> excuse me. Thanks, Catherine. That made me feel good. Anyway, but that makes sense to me. It does. It makes a lot of sense. I remember one young man who was a disabled man I know from Barry was stranded 
on a on a bus and on a corner one time for in bad weather for jeez. Oh, and I'm like, oh, people, we have to do better. So, Catherine, we've got two minutes. You have an answer for us? I wish I did. I Pat. know. Um, I really wish I did. I I would say that. You know, the efforts in the State House this year, um, S-100, for example, that the Senate's considering now is really trying to address some of the things we can control. Um, it's not going to be the end of the story. Um, this, is, right. this, this has been a crisis a couple decades yeah. in the making. And and I, I'm not even sure they can get that out this year because it's we'll still see. in the Senate and it's got to go to the House. And it's a huge bill. People, everybody will want to weigh in. So they may not make it. We'll um, I'm hoping they do make, put something out. I do. But, I do, too, because, uh, yeah. you know, Vermont's investing a lot of dollars in housing, which is great. Right. Catherine, I can't thank you enough for coming on, and thank you for doing this report. I have shared it with several friends of mine great. who um, are going to incorporate it into their their thinking and, and looking at this issue. Wonderful. Because um, the more minds... More ideas you should, uh, those listening, if you've got any good ideas, give them to your legislature. Or send them my way. <laughs> yeah, send them to Catherine. That's a good idea. Anyway, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Uh, we'll see you on Thursday. Bye.